When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners. What does William Blake have to say to the 21st century? It's a question posed by the writer John Higgs, author of many fine books uncovering the weird and the wonderful hiding just below the surface of our culture. His new book, William Blake vs. the World, takes up the challenge of mining the work of this famously esoteric and difficult poet and artist for ideas to live by. John, you're best known for your books documenting icons of the counterculture like Timothy Leary and the anarchic art rock band, the KLF. So in some ways, William Blake is quite an unusual subject for you, given that he's loved and honoured by the establishment. You know, there's a statue of him in Westminster Abbey and Jerusalem is sung at the proms and his Tate Britain retrospective was a blockbuster that was heaped in high praise. So what's going on here? Why has this marginalised artist become part of the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been a bit like going back to the source. You know, I have been writing about people like the KLF and Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson and various counterculture characters from the 20th century. But when I go back to Blake, I just find a lot of the ideas that I was writing about there were already uh, existing in the tail end of, of the 18th century. And it's the strange thing about Blake is, as you say, he has this sort of establishment affection where he sang at the last night of the proms and things like that. But at the same time, you'll find, you know, like socialist folk singers like Billy Bragg will also sing Jerusalem and, and you know, so will bands like the KLF or, or the Fall or you'll hear it sung by the Labour Party and the Conservative Party or the WI or the English cricket team. It's just it just crosses all the boundaries in British and specifically English uh, society, the, the from the establishment to the counterculture, from the left to the right, even really from, you know, the, the rational uh, and the agnostic to the um, religiously inclined. No one else does this. It's 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 completely unique. He has an appeal uh, that no one else has. And if that doesn't set warning bells you know, ringing that there's something interesting here, then I don't know what does. He seems uh, often to be the unofficial patron saint of Englishness, and the yeah, giant yeah. Albion often appears in his work. What's, what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly. Um, I hope that's how he's seen because he's an aspect of Englishness that I can totally get behind. And he, he was a visionary. There's, there's a thing about William Blake that you have to tackle in, in our, you know, rational 21st century, you know, secular world. You have to tackle the fact that he saw angels and he saw visions and he saw the world golden. Basically he lived in paradise. This is all very, very, um, difficult for a lot of people in the in modern world to sort of deal with because it's so absent from you know if you watch the telly today if you read a newspaper you know there'll be nothing in in the media that you consume that indicates the existence of the sort of awareness that William Blake was writing about but it's that awareness 
that his vision um, of Albion and of England becomes so inclusive because he sees the country from a point of view where there is no division between himself and the rest of the world. It's a vision of the country in which nationalism is just absurd. It's just the whole thing falls away. Whilst at the same time, he's very specific that different places have different characters and not everywhere is the same. And you should sort of celebrate and embrace and enjoy the, you know, the distinct quirks and oddities of where you are. You know, for Blake, that was London or, or Sussex or the southeast of uh, of England. And it was his it was his way of seeing that turned these into an Albion that was in, sort of inclusive and just made life worth living, really. Uh, and it's such a different vision of Englishness to the standard flag waving sort of sort of one that we get now that um, I just I just wish it was more common and more around, more, more shared. What do you think he would have made of his place in the culture if he was alive today? And I, I say that because he wasn't someone who cared very much about fitting in with other people, but he did care a lot about other people seeing the world as he did and persuading them to see the world as he did. Definitely. And uh, there's a, a new grave marker which uh, on top of his grave in Bunhill Fields in London, which the Blake Society had paid for and installed a couple of years ago. And, and the phrase they carved into it was a quote uh, from his epic illustrated poem, Jerusalem. And he says something like, uh, I give you the end of a golden thread, only roll it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate built in Jerusalem's wall. He's basically saying his work is like a way in. He wants people to sort of find him. And it's a really weird contradiction with the way he made no effort to achieve uh, an audience in his lifetime, really. As he, as he sort of got older uh, and as his early work failed to find much of an audience outside certain friends and, and, and acquaintances, you know, he could easily have gone, well, I'll I'll make this a bit more commercial. I'll make this a bit more easier. And he just went completely the other way. He went deeper and deeper into um, his own mythology, which he sort of invented and never really explained to anyone. He just sort of assumed people would get it eventually. So on one hand, yes, he did want to be understood. And at the other hand, he didn't let that get in the way, uh, you know, of doing what he thought was the proper work, what the real sort of stuff was. You know, it's for, for many artists, it's a very admirable sort of sense of bloody mindedness. It's a real pig headed sort of, you know, <laughs> I will not bow to anything. Will you give us a biographical sketch of who he was? I mean, he's a, he's a working class cockney. This is the age of revolutions. Yeah, absolutely. He was born 1757 above his parents' um, shop in uh, Soho near Golden Square, one of seven children. Very early on, it became clear that he was different, that, that he was sensitive, for want of a better word, uh, to the extent that he wasn't sent to school as a child. And he was sort of allowed free to wander out of London and through the countryside. And, you know, there's the stories of him walking to, you know, Peckham Rye and seeing this tree and it being filled with angels. And, uh, he was, he was like that from the start for his entire life. It wasn't something that he grew into. He was always like that. And he lived at such an age of, um, change and, and revolution the american revolution the french revolution in particularly in the 1790s when he did most of his his best work but he was he was also there for the gordon riots and uh the storming of the 
when London was on flames for about a week and there was a uh, a crowd sort of destroyed Newgate Jail and, um, you know, really sort of strange and dark and, and, and violent times. Uh, and he, he lived almost all of his life in London, uh, apart from three years when he moved to Felpham on the Sussex coast. And that's where he started to write the, the lyrics that we know as the hymn Jerusalem. And that's where he also found a, um, a soldier in his garden. This was at a time when there's a lot of paranoia in England after the, the French Revolution and the belief that uh, Napoleon was going to come and invade. And so the army was stationed all along the south coast. And he found this soldier in his in his garden and he, he uh, got into an argument with him, as was his want. Uh, and he sort of got his arm behind his back and he marched him down the road to the Fox Inn where he was billeted. Uh, and according to the soldier, he spoke seditious words. He damned the king. Uh, and and various things, and he was put on trial, and he could have lost his life. Such was the uh, the thing at the time. And all the, the villagers of Felpham turned up for the trial and went, "No, we didn't. We didn't hear him say anything like that. No, I didn't hear that." And so he got off. But it's noticeable that the things he was accused of saying were very much the sort of things that he would have been saying and was and, and was certainly writing. So. So it may well have been some truth in that. Um, yeah, and, and he returned to London and, you know, he continued to work, but to very little reward. He had one exhibition in his entire life and it was above his brother's shop and they sold nothing. And it got one review that referred to him as an unfortunate lunatic. And, you know, it's crushing, really, especially when you see how beautiful some of the images in that that exhibition were. Uh, just stunning work. And for him to be mocked and ignored really took its toll. And this, there was certainly a period in his middle ages when he was around maybe 40, 50, something like that, when his mental health was not good. And he he talked a lot of melancholy, uh, which he identified as a disease, a disease which he hoped people would be spared from. He really had a great understanding of the mind. Uh, and mental health, and there's some, there was some paranoia. But by the end of his life, he, he'd sort of worked through that, and um, he was just living in paradise, essentially. There was a lovely story about this girl. She was six when she met him, and uh, he was an old man at this time. And he said to her, I hope one day you're as happy as I am. And she looked up at this sort of, you know, penniless, sort of disheveled, ancient old man, and she just couldn't get her head around this it just seems such a such a stupid thing to to say for this, this sort of, and it wasn't until she was about 80 she at the other end of the the 19th century when she was about 80 she's finally got it she finally knew what he meant and she finally understood that he had been living in paradise uh and um you could certainly say he was rich in every conceivable way except financially how did this great age of revolutionary politics shape him? Because he wasn't a joiner, but he was on the periphery of radical circles, wasn't he? He was an acquaintance of Thomas Paine and of Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, he did some illustrations for some of her books. Right, right. They were all part of this circle, the, the Joseph Johnson circle, which was the radical place to be. And the stories that um, Blake warned Paine to leave Britain just in time. Uh, but generally, he wasn't, I guess, active politically in the way that these other people were. There was this, the Johnson Circle is a good example of these sort of informal 
dining or debating societies where people come together to discuss the, the latest ideas and understand where the world's going. And, you know, it was the age of enlightenment. And there was all this interest in rationality and, and uh, moving away from faith and, and how this would apply to political change and pulling down the kings and the bishops and, and all this sort of stuff. The, the beginnings of the individualism of the 20th century were all sort of being formed at this point. But Blake didn't really need to go in debates about how things were or how he saw things. He knew perfectly well how he saw things. He, he, he wasn't trying to work on his philosophy to sort of get smarter. And, you know, he just knew. Uh, and for him, there was no point in, in all this endless sort of sort of bickering. And he, he wasn't, um, there was a lovely quote, uh, I say lovely quote, about how in, uh, it wasn't the Joseph uh, Johnson circle, but from an earlier point, he had gone to these these gatherings. And it was described as um, his visits were not always welcome due to his manly firmness of opinion. Or, so, or, so, or so, words, words like that, his manly firmness of opinion. Is that the, the 18th century term for mansplaining? I yeah, think. I guess so, yeah. I guess. <laughs> In the 60s, he became an icon of, of free love. Did he deserve that? It's definitely an aspect of him. It, certainly, basically, his reputation grew slowly after his death. Um, he died in 1827. And by the end of the 19th century, a few works were starting to appear in you know collections of, of poetry and um, uh, things like the Tiger in particular and the, the words that became the hymn Jerusalem are sort of being noted at that point. It took a long time. There was a biography of him written in 1863 called uh, William Blake, Pictor Ignotus, which translates as unknown painter. It was a biography of this unknown <laughs> painter. And then early 20th century, Hubert Parry put music to the words that we know as Jerusalem. And this was during the time of the First World War. So it was very sort of patriotic uh, sort of music. But he, even then, Parry sort of recognised the sort of radical edge of Blake and he sort of donated uh, the copyright to the women's suffrage movement. Uh, and hence, that's why it's it's so important to the, the Women's Institute and, and, and things like that. So that started to build him up. But it was really in the 1960s when we had this huge explosion of, you know, psychedelic counterculture. Uh, and people were trying to I guess, find models for what it was that they were experiencing when they were taking, you know, mescaline or LSD or, or magic mushrooms or, or anything like that. Uh, and an important work was Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, uh, which was written, was it the 30s? Early as that? Something like that, uh, about his experiments with mescaline. And to talk about these things, basically Huxley just went back to Blake because there was no one else really who seemed to be talking about what he was experiencing. You know, it, it wasn't a case of he had a great choice, but he, he chose Blake. It sort of had to be Blake. You know, that phrase, the doors of perception is just, he just took from Blake and, uh, uh, and used a lot of quotes. And so in the sixties, the post-war generation, they're turning to Aldous Huxley's book and finding Blake that way. Hence you get bands like the doors, which was, uh, named after the Doors of Perception, which was from Blake. And um, particularly Allen Ginsberg, the poet, he had a real visionary moment uh, reading Blake, and Blake was utterly uh, central to him becoming a poet, really, and, and dedicating his life to art and writing things like Howl. Um, and, and it's because when people in the 1960s looked at Blake, they saw the um, the sexual liberation 
They saw the, the desire for freedom. They saw the anti-establishment attitudes. They saw the love of life, basically, the, the sort of the importance of creativity and art uh, and, and the uh, rejection of sort of repression by the church and all these things that to the, 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 the high individualism of the 1960s, they just went, yes, this is our guy. This is our guy. So the, he's always been, since then, he's been very much embraced by the counterculture. But even then, that's only particular aspects of him and his work that they're latching onto. He's such a complex and multifaceted uh, thinker that there's, whoever approaches him pretty much gets their own unique Blake because they see bits of themselves reflected in and they're more drawn to their own interests and their, their baggage or their, and their, uh, what, you know, whatever, whatever you want to find in Blake, you will find. So everyone who goes to him comes back with something completely different. And now in the 2020s, when, you know, we've got um, Generation Z coming up and everyone's not so much thinking themselves as individuals, but much more sort of networked or, or understanding of how our relationships define us as much as as who we are or that we can't understand what we're capable of unless we include who we're connected to and uh, our reputations and, and how we influence people and the impact we have on others uh, all that's much more prevalent now than it was uh, and when you go back to Blake now you see aspects of him that uh, the 60s weren't as interested in but which just jump out at you now and it's almost like as we progress through the decades and as we as a culture sort of grow and hopefully learn and get wiser and wiser, we just keep catching up with Blake. You know, he's way ahead of us and we're just slowly getting to where he was. You know, God knows how long it will take before we fully catch up. But we're, you know, we're, we're getting there, I think. He wasn't just a, a political radical, was he? He was also a technological innovator because he pioneered a new kind of engraving that combined words and pictures in a new way. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, he was a real grafter, basically, as an artist. He's often tied up with the romantics. And there's this sense of the, you know, the romantic sort of lounging around on couches with a quill, sort of channeling the muses while dosed up on laudanum. And it's that, that sort of... Um, uh, they've got their private incomes, they've got their tours of Europe. That's not Blake at all. For him, art, creativity, imagination was labour. And it comes from working as an engraver and as a printer. And it's all about metal and fire and acid and long hours and working away. And in the course of doing that, he did invent whole new um, techniques of printing where he could combine his own illustrations and his own texts uh, in ways that stand and printed didn't allow if he learned to write everything backwards and he did he so he learned to write everything just backwards because it was worth it for the for the uh, the final result and few others would go that far which is why his techniques didn't really catch on at the time because it took that level of dedication to sort of get them to to work but yeah he was very skilled very skilled engraver uh etcher and um i mean he said this new technique which involved he basically had a a, a varnish that he would paint on, on a sheet of copper and then pour acid over it and where he had painted that would not be eaten away it was it was a, a this very sort of technique it shows you know he had a real sort of practical 
earthy sort of mind, for one who seemed so unearthly. He was there working away with the tools of his trade, definitely. Given his innovations with with words and pictures, it seems very fitting that uh, the comic book icon Alan Moore idolises Blake. And I do remember after visiting the Tate Britain retrospective, the gift shop was stuffed full of great British comic books, and they are not normally there in the Tate Britain shop. So why do you think that is? (laughs) Well, it's, it's... Partly, an obvious way to start is that it was Blake's combining of images and text it has a real huge appeal to the you know the comic industry, and it's why uh, if you look at the Blake Society, uh, their patrons are Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore. There's um, partly they come and are very influenced by that '60s counterculture psychedelic sort of world that the comic industry has been you know totally absorbed by that. But also, you know, Blake would sort of invent these fantastic mythologies with all these, you know, incredible sort of strange, unearthly characters that you could see people like Jack Kirby also doing a very similar thing, but in a sort of American sort of working class way. Certainly the working class nature of Blake appeals specifically to people like Alan Moore. You know, and Alan just loves Blake. As far as he's concerned, he's as good as a person can be, really. That sort of... That, that sense uh, that the imagination is divine and the imagination uh, is, is, is so important to his work, combined with his sort of um, his political side, his, his uh, radical anger and his stubbornness, his great sort of the refusal to, to bend, you know, that the creativity, the creative act is everything uh, and you have to honour that. Alan loves all that sort of stuff. Well, it's probably only a matter of time before Marvel starts adapting the Blakeian pantheon for the big screen. <laughs> I would love that to be the case. Because the, th- the thing with Blake is we're not taught his mythology. And it's not generally a sort of a shared cultural reference. It's it's why when you get Blakeians together, it's, it's really exciting. Because you can just say things like, oh, that's yours and speaking. You know, and expect people to know what you mean. And it's a reference. If everybody knew it, because it's such a rich and um, uh, insightful, psychologically insightful system that he sort of created. You know, if we were taught it at school or if it was in the Marvel movies or, or, or something like that, we'd pick it up because we love mythology. We love the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the, we know so much about Westeros and the Game of Thrones universe or the Middle Earth or, you know, we could, we can make references to these things very easily. We can very easily also include Blake's uh, mythology in our general cultural tool bag, and it would be much better for it, I think, if we did. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've alluded to this already, of course. He was a visionary, not in the abstract metaphorical sense that we use that word in the modern day. He was seeing angels and devils from a young age, and they inform his artworks. Will you tell us about Blake's hallucinations? Assuming these creatures were not real, what do you think was going on? 
he was very clear that they, they existed in his mind, in his imagination. There's a story where he was at a, a gathering, a party, and he was, he was telling about a vision he'd had uh, in the countryside. And a woman had said, pray tell Mr. Blake, where did you see this? And he just sort of tapped his head and said, here, madam. You know, it was all, it was very clear that it was in his mind. He didn't believe, he knew that other people didn't see the same things that he could see, but he thought people could learn to. He thought if we, the imagination was a tool that could be strengthened. And if we strengthened it and we, we, the sort of things that he was experiencing would be, you know, shared more widely and valued more. Because it's, it's that's how he valued them. That's that's the matter. That it's the recognition that uh, that our internal world is everything. Really, for Blake, all the um, God and heaven and hell and angels and demons, these were all things that were internal. Uh, man forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. Is is how he put it, which is quite a, almost a blasphemous way of looking at it. It's certainly very different to how the church teaches spiritual matters um even though in the gospel of luke it says the kingdom of heaven is within generally the church ignores that sort of bit and no no the, the heaven is elsewhere it's a distance away you can't get there now but for blake no 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 it was it was accessible and internal and i think it's in this sort of secular modern day i find it a really useful idea uh, and the example i always always give is that very few people genuinely believe that hell exists now in the modern world, that the hell is an actual physical place that is a place you can go to or to be sent to at some point that could, in theory, exist on a map if we had the right map. Very few people believe that, but pretty much all of us have known someone who at some point in their life has been living in hell. And I think we all know instinctively that to deny that would be wrong, to deny what they've sort of been going through. And once you grasp the idea that, say, hell is a state, an internal state, the idea that a paradise can be as well also becomes equally valid. And that helps explain a lot of what I was talking about earlier, about how Blake spent so much of his, his time living in paradise. And that sort of makes that real. And all these sort of these notions from um, centuries of theology, which is, you know, in intelligent, rational, modern people, we can dismiss with a wave of the hand on the ground that they're atheists or agnostics and we don't believe a word of it and they don't exist out there, they suddenly become valid. They suddenly become useful again. And suddenly the notion that like of the state of your soul. So a materialistically minded person, it would seem absurd. Suddenly you go, oh yeah, that does actually matter. That does actually matter how I see the world and how I how I feel in this world because it's it's my one, you know, my one brief uh, 80 years alive on this globe going around the sun if that's all we get then the quality of, of, of the experience of our awareness whether that tends to be hellish or to be more divine that does actually matter that becomes important yeah so so blake does make you start to question things which you may have long ago sort of you know ignored, decided was irrelevant and, and just said oh that's that's old, old thinking. We're, we're past that. He brings a lot of that back and you go, oh, yeah, actually, that's useful. And he was often described in his own lifetime as, as mad, wasn't he? Which is a very loaded term. 
very loaded term, but the 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 understanding of, of madness and, and mental health at the time was just it, it's it it flatters it to say it was in its infancy. It was it, it, I mean they they built Bedlam, but it wasn't a hospital in the modern sense. It was just a place to put lunatics where they'd be they wouldn't get in any trouble basically. So there's no attempt to cure people, or there wasn't really understandings of whether madness for want of a better term was was uh was curable at all and it became a big political issue when george the third became what appeared to be mad at the, at the time and whether he would recover was a, a, a huge a huge uh political uh quandary uh it's when we started to you can sort of trace the the beginnings of our, of sort of our rational inquiry into understanding what madness was back to, to those days. But it was certainly something that was feared. And being thought mad was something that was very much uh, a terrifying uh, thing for, for most rational rakes around town, for, for want of a word. And, and there's a lot of evidence that um, Blake was aware that people thought he was mad or called him mad behind his back and, 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 and so forth. Uh, and it's, um, it has made people, when they first see his more complex work, go, oh, well, if he was mad, I don't really need to try and understand this because I can just say he right. was mad and there's no, no great insight or, or great uh, value to it. But um, those who have gone into it, you just go, why God, this man was sane. You know, the, his insights and his understanding, these are brilliant. There's brilliance here. Yeah. So, so the, the, we're, we're, you know, we're at a, a, a point now where we can comfortably say that, uh, you know, there were periods when he had poor mental health, but that in no way, you know, uh, is a reason to reject or dismiss, you know, the, the importance of his work. One of my favourite uh, anecdotes from the book is when he meets William Wordsworth. Wordsworth describes him as mad but interesting, and Blake has exactly the same opinion of Wordsworth. Yeah, absolutely. For Blake, Wordsworth worshipped nature, which um, Blake was not having, you know, because nature didn't have that human imagination that Blake identified. He identified it with Jesus, really, with, with the, um, the you know the spiritual light within us. And uh, for those reasons, he was going, oh, uh, Wordsworth's not even a Christian. He's a Platonist. He worships nature. He's, nature is the devil. He, he thought he was, he was insane. And uh, yeah, <laughs> for very different reasons for why Wordsworth thought Blake was mad. So Blake had a, a very sophisticated philosophical framework for understanding his, his visions and his politics and the concept of imagination, which, as you said earlier, he valued above everything. You've given Blake's worldview a name. You call it divine humanism. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was aware that Blake's worldview, for want of a better term, his philosophy, his, his way of understanding the world, had the strange habit of not fitting into any of our standard boxes any of our standardised um, labels, nothing really quite fitted. Blake would have just said he was a Christian uh, and that's how he saw himself. But his definition of Christianity would be very questioned by most modern day Christians. You know, he certainly didn't go to church, but the, the notion that Jesus was the imagination would be for a lot of Christians very confusing and very, very, very strange. The way he referred to the, the God of the Old Testament by the name Nobo Daddy, I think most Christians would also have issues with. Um, 
so if he wasn't a Christian, you go, well, what was he? Was he a Gnostic? There's a lot of Gnostic thought in his mythology, especially around this character called called Eurizen, uh, who's who's very central. But he wasn't a Gnostic because he believed that the soul and the body were part of the same thing. The Gnostics see the body as a, a jail for the soul and, and things like that. Not for Blake, the body was lovely. You know, he, 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 the importance of sexuality and pleasure and everything was is, is very important in Blake. There are aspects of it that um, seem to be Taoist. There are aspects of it that seem Vedic thought, of Hindu thought. There are aspects of it that you could just say is atheism. You know, the notion that uh, all the spiritual world is internal. For an atheist, they can say, "Well, that's yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you on that." As much as Blake would have hated it, he would have hated to be thought of an atheist. So there was no real label for him, and I was trying to come up with, with something. And um, for him, the the humanity was central. Humanity was central to the universe. Uh, it was through humanity that this light of imagination uh, uh, came into into the material and vegetable world. Um, and so humanity was pivotal, really, of utmost importance. But when you look at things like humanism and, and um, uh, labels like that, they're much more materialistic than Blake. They're, you know, they're, there was, there's no spiritual aspect to most humanist thought. Um, they're very atheistic, which wasn't Blake. So the sense that the human and the human imagination was divine seemed to me to be the way to label Blake. And so I had to come up with the phrase divine humanism to put that little little label on him. But, you know, knowing Blake, I'm sure he'll soon find a loophole and wrangle out of it. You know, doesn't like to be pinned down too much. How has Blake's worldview changed you over the course of, of writing this book? I think reading Blake and uh, reading about Blake and understanding Blake has improved the quality of my life. To put it as bluntly as that, you know, I think things are better when you 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 have Blake in your life, and when you you see you know see the world out of his eyes, if only briefly, you know, just a little glimpse every now and again, to know that it's there makes things a delight. You know, it's it's escaping from that sort of that that sort of rational left brain model of the world that we build in our minds. Uh, that Blake personifies this character Eurism, it's and and which dominates so much of our um, our discourse, especially online. This this need to be need to be seen as right and need to have people to agree with you. It's all it's all a very sort of rational part of our minds, and it's it's tied up with language and it's tied up with um, uh, it's 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 a finite model of the world, which is only a from Blakeian points of view, only a small aspect of what really exists. And you just get a glimpse outside it. You just get a glimpse outside that sort of chattering left brain that, that you know, that, that drives you mad. It just makes everything fine. It makes, you know, it, it makes, it makes everything bearable. And it, you know, this doesn't mean that Blake was, I don't know, just like this comfortable person in denial about the hardships of life or, or turning a blind eye uh, to people suffering or, you know, just uh, just in denial of what people would go through. That's not Blake at all. You look at his work, you look at poems like London, you see how clear-eyed he was about things like child chimney sweeps and um, and poverty and uh, inequality and uh, injustice and things like He could see these really, really clearly. 
But at the same time, he could see the gold of life, for want of a better word. These were not separate things. Uh, you know, when he, when he talks of seeing London as Jerusalem, it's not just wishful thinking. He's, he's, he's aware of the reality. He's aware of the dark, but he's also aware of the light. When you know one, you should know the other. Because uh, he really rails against people who just focus on one. Who just People who just focus on heaven for a start. He had no interest, you know, he would be very, very critical of. And people who just focus on hell, equally, equally, they're not seeing it all. For Blake, as he put it in the title of his book, he wanted the marriage of heaven and hell. You need them both. You get both. And it's the dynamic between two that keeps life moving and makes life interesting, makes life worthwhile. Um, yeah, it's it's a very human-centered philosophy that is full of light and joy, and, and is 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 uh, it's not blind, but it's good. Put it that way, anyway. John Higgs, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred John Higgs and was presented and produced by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty. William Blake vs. The World is out now, wherever good books are sold. For more on the counterculture, check out our episode with Michael Pollan on psychedelics. For more poetry, we've got Owen Jones in conversation with Yale professor Claudia Rankine. For more from the history of literature, Try novelist Maggie O'Farrell on Shakespeare or George Saunders on the Russian Masters. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>